My guest is Catherine Austin Fitz. She is the president of Solary Inc. and the publisher of the Solary Report, which provides investment consultant information for shifting um, wealth away from financial institutions without acting uh, on our, that are not acting on our best interest. And earlier, she served as a managing director and a member of the board of directors for the Wall Street Investment Bank of Dillon Reed. She was also Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development during the first Bush administration. And after leaving the Bush administration, she founded the Hamilton Securities Group, an investment bank and financial software developer named after the first U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. In 1996, she and her successful company became targets of a vicious, long-lasting uh, lawsuit that resulted in the closing of Hamilton Securities, and she ultimately uh, was successful in court of claims litigation, asserting that the government had no right to withhold monies owed to her. To date, she has designed and closed over $25 billion worth of transactions and investments and led investment strategies for over $300 billion in assets and liabilities. Her website is solary.com, S-O-L-A-R-I. Nice to have you with us today. Oh, Gary, it's nice to be with you. I have long been your admirer. Well, thank you. I'd like to ask uh, just a few questions, and as is the nature of my particular way of interviewing, I like to keep quiet so that a guest is not rushed. They have a full time to give us the full contents and context of their arguments. And here are my concerns, and they're going to be in three areas. I'm going to talk, okay. ask you about illegal drugs, but that won't be the first one. The illegal drugs that we now have absolute proof were, uh, were washed through major banks, including Citigroup and others, and why no one from those banks was ever held personally responsible, whereas if you or I were to launder money from any drug or drug cartel, we would spend a long time in prison. That's one question. The second one is how much power the banking community has over policy, policymakers, laws, regulations, in our government, the reality of it, the truth of it. But we're going to start with this. This is a hypothesis. It cannot be proven or disproven. It, we can only have our opinions. But here's my argument. We are now on quantitative easing three, but that's a deception because we actually had four. They did not count the $16.3 trillion and 22,000 transactions that was audited by Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul that showed in this gigantic report that 20 corporations, all of those were banks, received this $16 trillion at zero interest and were allowed to give their most toxic assets as collateral that could never be cleaned up, so I'm assuming they were just eliminated, but they haven't been paid back. $2.1 trillion, $2.3 trillion, $1.7 trillion. Goldman Sachs was $840 billion. None of this was ever made public, either to members of Congress or to the media or to the American public. But we, the public, are ultimately responsible for that. Yet that $16 trillion doesn't count anywhere. It's not on our books as a liability, though it is until it's all paid back and there's no interest. And now they're asking for quantitative four, even though three is already just started, they're now saying they want a fourth. So my larger question is this. 
We don't have one economy. We have seven. Wall Street has its own unique economy, which more often than not is about making money off money. Derivatives, credit default swaps, and all the ways that people make their money. The economy of the average person, a poor person, a person on Social Security, a person on a fixed income is completely different. Why is it, then, that we could not have allowed the major corporations to have gone through structured bankruptcy, break those companies down, separate out and, and completely eliminate their debt, and, <clears throat> and then have them, their management taken away and regenerated in them <clears throat> but with some controls in place instead of the argument that has been given by everyone, left and right. They're too big to fail. If we didn't bail them all out, the world would, economy would have collapsed. And we've got to keep bailing out because if we don't, the world economy collapses. And yet I'm looking at the actual economies of a small business person like me. I don't have any loans. I have to pay my $65,000 a month rent. I have to pay. I have to earn $30,000 every day of the week just to stay in business. I have no help from anybody. And yet not a nickel goes to me. Nothing goes to me except the backhand of the local bureaucracies, the state bureaucracies, the federal bureaucracies. And yet people who've never run a business run the White House and run the world. The people who've never had to hire and fire to work seven days a week, 60 to 100 hours a week, they are not a single one of those people you see in any area of government or any place where decision-making is made. And yet that offends me in the extreme that we're told we must give all of the money to these people or we will all collapse. I think we have been had. I think we've been lied to. Those are my personal feelings. They're all subjective and they're all hypothetical. I'd like your input, please. Well, Gary, I call it a financial coup d'etat because I think a decision was made uh, to re-engineer the, the process on which governance is of the assets in the economy is being managed. And rather than uh, discuss those change in policies with the general population, a decision was just made to pull the capital out of the economy and to, and to engineer a change of control through the financial system. So the reason nobody at the banks has been thrown into jail was that they were paid to engineer very systemic and systematic fraud that was, you know, and fraudulent paper that was sold globally. So, for example, you described a sort of a covert QE3, and I think there have been several covert QEs, so I agree totally with everything you just said. But um, I think the reason that, that the QE, so much of the QEs have been covert is because they've been buying back in the fraudulent paper. So if you sell to a sovereign nation, Russia, China, significant amounts of fraudulent paper and then you just stick them with the fraud, then that is literally uh, inviting an act of war. So I think the, the bringing back of that paper in has been uh, one of the reasons is to protect the world from, from seeing the extent of the fraud, because the extent of the fraud could, if, if that was shown and those losses were taken by all the parties that held them, um, you know, some of the, the, the parties that have guns and can kill... <laughs> I think they, you know, they don't, they don't want to necessarily stick the losses with. So the cleanup of that fraud, what what we saw during the 90s was the the suction of huge capital out of the developed markets, financed with debt, a lot of which was fraudulent or 
or money that was fraudulently taken, and we can talk about some of the money that's missing from the U.S. government. Um, and that money was reinvested uh, in a variety of places, my guess is, uh, emerging markets, and I think a lot more has been invested in space than people think, and also in visible weaponry. But if you if you go back and you look at a history of that fraud, it starts not just in the 90s, but with what's called the Black Budget, which takes us back to the sort of the end of World War II, and the grow you know the investment and growing of a parallel government structure, which is non-transparent and hidden. I think the the, the greatest challenge for any American who tries to understand the American economy is everything secret. Um, you know, we literally live on a planet where, where we're not allowed to know how the governance system really works, the real one, not the, you know, the official one we're told in school. So, um, so I think we've had a financial coup d'etat and a decision has been made to rebalance the economy globally. Um, and to do that, we've pumped up fantastic amounts of debt throughout the world, but particularly in the developed world. Um, and and we are now going to try and finance that debt with essentially an abrogation of retirement um, retirement obligations and a debasement of of people's assets, which is ongoing and which I call the slow burn. And I think part of that financial coup d'état is a decision to radically centralize ownership and control. And governance of the of the economy. Now, not to say that these kinds of things weren't going on all along, but I think this has become pretty radical. And new technology allows fantastic centralization of control of a kind you know we could never envision, um, you know, before the computer and the PC came along. So, there's no doubt we're we're going through an extraordinary centralization of the economy. Part of that situation is that for 500 years the the western world has been on a on a investment model called central banking warfare which is the central banks print money and then the military makes sure that people that governments and countries and institutions around the world take that money so it's really backed up by force and the reality is given the changes in the world given the rebalancing of the global economy given the changes in technology we need a new model and part of that is that that with new technology, there is, um, you know, 90% of the jobs that, that people in the developed world's earned income doing are not needed anymore. We can have robots do them. We can have computers do them. And so one of the big questions is, if the central banking warfare model is about tapped out, how do we change the model? And while we're changing the model, how do we grapple with the fact that we're going through you know, literally the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution where millions of people, uh, you know, lost the, their source of income and had to reinvent themselves. I appreciate So I say it's that. a financial coup d'etat. You know, I don't, I don't think this is fraud. I think this is a plan. Oh, okay, good. That's very few people will go on the record saying that, and you're on the record saying I appreciate it. I'm going to tie three things together and ask you to address them. Um, that okay. may seem, they may seem to be completely disconnected. Today, the Independent in England just published with Jeremy Lawrence a study that showed, quote, drug giants 
fined $11 billion for criminal wrongdoing. I'll just quote the first paragraph. The global pharmaceutical industry has racked up fines of more than $11 billion in the past three years for criminal wrongdoing, including withholding safety data and promoting drugs for use beyond their license condition. And all 26 companies, including eight of the top 10 players in the global industry, have been found guilty to acting dishonestly. The scale of the wrongdoing revealed for the first time has undermined public and professional trust in the industry and is holding back clinical progress, according to two papers published in today's New England Journal of Medicine. Leading lawyers have warned that the multi-billion dollar fines are not enough to change the industry's behavior. It's just the cost of doing business. From this, and by the way, one of this was from Boston University. From this, here's my question. I did the same thing with Wall Street firms and found over $1 trillion in total fines paid out over the last 20 years by all the Wall Street firms collectively and the pharmaceutical giants for multiple criminal wrongdoing, and yet not a single one of these firms' reputation has been adversely affected. In the case of one firm, Pfizer, after they gave us Vioxx and it killed a minimum of 65,000 people, and caused 100 to 150,000 heart attacks and strokes, they paid $5.58 billion fine. No criminal wrongdoing had to be established. They And they got a bonus. The head of the company got a bonus, and the stock went up. So where you and I, if you or I to commit crimes against humanity of any type, and we had, a, we had shown that we had done this more than once, our reputations would be forever tarred and feathered. Why is it? that the leading corporations in the world, including the banking industry and the pharmaceutical industries, and I'm only using those two. I could use the military-industrial complex also, but I've only done my actual studies. But here's someone who did the studies also. Billions and billions of dollars, lots of people dead. It's a cost of doing business. And yet we continue to allow these people to have the lobbyist and to write our laws to enact our, our, our legislation and be on television with their talking head experts telling us what is right and wrong and never held accountable. Your thoughts, please. Well, this is a very, this is a very complex subject, so let me see if I can make it simple. And I want to tell you two stories. In the summer of uh, 2000, I was at a revival for Christian women down in Atlanta, and um, the pastor was from Dallas, and he brought George W. Bush in by monitor. It was during the campaign. And um, I had I was with a, a group from my church, including a minister who had been in the Drug Enforcement Agency, and there wasn't anything about criminality by any leading politicians, including the Bushes, that she didn't know. And so uh, the whole audience stood up cheering for George W. Bush, and I said to her later, uh, remember, this is one of my ministers. I said to, you know, Patricia, uh, you know, I've almost lost my life and I've certainly lost my fortune trying to stop narcotics trafficking and mortgage fraud by the Bush and Clinton networks, and you never stood up for me cheering. And she said, well, he's going to win. And I said, so he's a winner and I'm a loser. And she said, yeah, that's right. Now, if you if you look at the cultural standards by which we function in America, we support, you know, in the marketplace with our vote, with our transactions, with our investments, with our attention, the people who, quote-unquote, win, not the people who act ethically. 
And, um, you know, it's always been that way. If you come and, you know, I've sat on major corporate boards and in at the head of government agencies, and the, and the message to everybody is the crowd supports the, you know, the criminal, not Jesus. So if you go back to the story of the crucifixion, the Romans know it's very bad politics to crucify Jesus, and they're trying to get out of it. So they invite the crowd, and the crowd supports the criminal. So and lets the criminal off. And so the the message to the leadership is dirtball wins, not, you know, as what Jeb Bush once said, there's no constituency for financial responsibility. Let me give you another uh, example. Um, I was speaking to a group of people, the Spiritual Frontiers Foundation in Philadelphia, the same year, 2000 was a bad year, and um, I asked them, what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in money laundering, including for narcotics trafficking? Uh, what what would happen? And they said, well, you know, it would be very bad because uh, the stock market would go down because that money would go to Hong Kong and Singapore and Zurich, and we'd have trouble financing the government deficit, and <laughs> our government checks might stop. And I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern, and if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your county, your city, your town, your state. Tomorrow, that's offending the people who control $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year of global money laundering. Um, who here will push the button? And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, guess how many would push the button? I don't know. One. So I said to the other 99, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our government checks to stop. We don't want our mutual funds to go down. And we don't want uh, our taxes to go up. Now, let me go back to the central banking warfare model. For for hundreds of years, the majority of Americans have been the beneficiaries of our ability to maintain the reserve currency and basically use the military to extract cheap natural resources from other populations and sort of hold up our economy. And as a result, we found it's to our short-term and intermediate-term benefit to support the system, even though the system is doing many things to control and drain us as well. So we we have bought into an exploitive system, and we as a people have never found a way to organize to basically shift the system. And And so the reality is, as bad as the fraud is on Wall Street and Washington, what is important to understand about the last 15 years of what's just happened with the financial crisis is the, the, the debt bubble and the fraud was engineered one county at a time by millions of Americans who are making money on it. So essentially, you know, it's remarkable the extent to which the population in general is complicit in all of this and doesn't see the whole thing whole. I'm very glad your expression of saying, you know, these might look like they're disparate phenomena, but they're not. You know, we we talk about the different parts of the corruption, whether it's mortgage fraud and drugs, like it's two separate things. It's not. It's deeply entwined as a living system. And you know, when you look at the human body, you look at it as a living system, dynamic, everything connects to everything. It's the same with the economy and the fraud. And that's why, you know, what each one of us needs to navigate this and to help change it is we need to see it whole, and we need to see it and find our power. And our power comes from saying, you know, I'm going to take responsibility for this, and I'm going to come clean in my own life and my own money and my own transactions, 
and try and get out of my dependency on what is an increasingly sick system. And the more of us who will do that, and the more of us who will shun the dirty players. Um, if I had to, if I had to say one book that I think has been the most seminal in my thinking on where the real solutions and how we get real power in this situation, it's a wonderful book by an economist from the University of Michigan, Robert Axelrod, called The Evolution of Cooperation. And he sat down in the 70s and said, okay, how can the guys who bring peace make more money than the guys who bring war? And one of the things he discovered, Gary, was that the condition precedent to doing that was transparency. Because when, when, if I can go around to the other side of the earth, deal drugs, kill people, come back and be a hero in my own hometown, then crime pays. And, and if you, I've done a case study uh, called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. It's up on the internet. You can see it. Um, and and what it shows is the financial engineering that allows people to be honored and famous and admired, even though what they're engineering is the worst form of corruption and fraud, uh, you know, and even genocide. So so the minute we can get the general population to see how the system works and see it whole, so that they can start to shun the dirty players, that's what's going to make it possible for the clean players to generate greater profits and greater investment. Uh, you know, and, and the reality at the end of the day in a global economy is who enforces, and we're all going to need to enforce. And we can do that if we can, if we can be transparent, because we will avoid most people will avoid the dirty players if they can see who the dirty players are. But right now, if I sit down with my family, my friends, um, and the general people around me, my neighbors, and I ask them who they'd admire, they would admire the people who are most uh, responsible for engineering the fraud and most responsible for engineering the genocide going on globally. Hi, Catherine. I I really understand what you're saying from a... from. <clears throat> from a heart point of view, not an existential or intellectual point of view, because I thought that the idea of a 99-1%, it made for a very catchy slogan, but everywhere I look, the 99% are participating in giving power over to the 1% and actually supporting them. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's when I went down to Occupy Wall Street, which I did every day for 28 days, to try to give them support. I brought them food from my health food store. I, I gave them books. I, I, I offered them a place on the radio. I did everything I could to help them. All I asked them was, allow in those of us who've been in the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the back to the earth movement, the human rights movement, the health movement. There are millions of Americans of all ages who participated in movements. Allow us in to help you so that it just doesn't become about you, and do you have a place to sleep tonight? So with one of them, and this was rather typical, one of them, I said, tell me what you're actually against. Globalization. I said, good, we're on the same page. Now, what part of globalization are you against? Well, we're against all of it. I said, okay. Uh, so I said, I, I agree with you. I said, now, I said, now, here, here's the idea. Look at my shirt. So I took off my shirt and I showed it was made uh, with, with uh, union labor in the United States, as was my belt and my and my, I showed my credit card, you know, from a from as <clears throat> from not a major bank. And I said, "Now, I'm a vegan. I eat organic. I locally grown. Because if I walk into McDonald's, I'm supporting globalization. If I if I drink a Pepsi Cola, which you're drinking right now, I'm supporting globalization. A Coca Cola, globalization. If I'm wearing a designer." Genes that were made in Bangladesh, globalization. So, do you understand that if you're if you're going to be against something, 
make that incorporated into your whole lifestyle so you're living an example of it. And that way it's more authentic. But to say you're against something, but then you're supporting it all in actuality, it, it, it rings hollow. And that was what I got time and again. So my next question is this. Actually, I just had a thought. It was You're familiar with Horace Greeley. He said the darkest mm-hmm. hour of any man's life is when he sits down to plan how to make money without earning it. And and what I see now are two things coming together. For those of our stations, uh, if you just tuned in, Catherine Austin Fitz is my guest, and we're talking about her perspective on finance banks, global global, uh, governance, the power elites, and the power they have over us and how we have to change individually and then collectively and show our strengths. If we're smart enough to make money the honest way, if we're able to use nature in a sustainable way and we collectivize that in such a way that we can all participate, then we have a future. If all we do is complain and are angry but continue to be supported by that system that can exploit us, then we have allowed a Stockholm Syndrome to manifest. Now, two things to connect here. For your next uh, uh, question, do you remember who said the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government? U.S. wars and violence overseas are all meant to maintain unjust predatory investments? No, I don't know who said it. That was Martin a Luther lot of King. people said something like that. Mar- uh, yeah, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King yeah. said that in a, in a very famous speech. And... Uh, and um, that was at the Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967. And it was known as Beyond Vietnam, a time to break silence. And yet here's Barack Obama saying we intervene in Libya alongside a broad coalition and with the mandate of the U.N. Security Council because we had the ability to stop the slaughter of innocents and because we believed that the aspirations of the people were more powerful than a tyrant. Well, all we did was create thousands of tyrants and slaughter the people. Now, look, here's the well, other two things. I'm almost okay, finished. Go ahead. Two things just this morning, just this morning, and I've been predicting this. This is from The Guardian. Striking Greeks retake streaks. No to Troika's austerity. We are bleeding. Hundreds of thousands demonstrate against latest proposed cuts. I've said we make the mistake in the West of looking at the bankers who then support through lobbying the politicians that then give back all the money to the bankers, but you have a bleeding population, it will tear you to pieces in time. And now is the time. I believe the Greeks will completely take over the country, they'll throw out their government and say no to any more bailouts. Then now today in Spain, this is just this morning, quote, the Spanish public won't accept a financial coup d'etat. Spain's government is right to fear the public reaction to this new round of suffering mandated by the financial markets. This is also from The Guardian. And now the Spanish government is firing into the crowds of hundreds of thousands. Boy, that's a mistake. And But all this is fully backed by the President of the United States, his, his cabinet, our Secretary of State, a warmonger, Hillary Clinton, and I'd say, you piss off the Greek people and the Spanish people, the entire European Union is going to come down because these people have had enough. And the great Gerald Salante said, when you have nothing to lose, you lose it. So I see our efforts to colonize economically these economies as failing, punishing the people uh, because of the mistakes made by the banking and financial community 
failing, and I see that within the next 12 months there will be complete change in the European uh, structure of power, and that will manifest rippling effects in the United States. Your thoughts on this, please? Well, there's no doubt that Greece and the, you know, the, the European Union and the and the euro, to me, make absolutely no sense. To me, centralization in many forms is usually not very efficient, but centralization is really about controlling the many with the few. And so the goal of the system is not to be economically productive or to make economic sense. It's to ensure centralized control. And I think the, the big question we need to ask is why Why is the leadership so intent on doing it? What America is intent on doing is shifting from what it used to be, which is a democratic republic, to a global empire. And that decision has been made. If you could watch one uh, video that could inform your understanding of the U.S. economy, it would be Sir James Goldsmith's interview with Charlie Rose. You can get it both on YouTube and and, uh, and on my blog at Salary.com. It was an interview he gave in 1994. He had put aside his business career to serve in the European Parliament and, and basically try and stop the centralization he wrote a book called The Trap, arguing that the euro would do exactly what it's done. Um, and he had a remarkable and very prescient understanding of sort of the, the effort to centralize the global economy. And so, again, it's Sir James Goldsmith's interview with Charlie Rose in 1994. And, and he explains why um, centralization won't work, why the euro won't work. And what he points out is the greatest danger in all of this, Gary, which is not sort of what is happening particularly to southern Europe, it's the globalization and industrialization of the food supply globally. Um, and he describes that if the genetically modified food and sort of the efforts to patent life and everything that's underway in the food supply isn't, you know, happens, um, that we're literally going to move two to three billion people off the land uh, with no plan as to exactly what we're going to do with them. And so he's talking about the potential for really genocide on a on a mass scale and the dangers and the threat to our culture and, and global economy of central control of the, of the seed and food system, which I think is the greatest danger before us and one of the reasons I'm such an admirer of your work. And um, so I think, you know, can the global empire continue to do what it's doing in Europe uh, Yes, if it's happy to get to to go on with a modified uh, euro, I think Greece will probably um, drop out, and then what happens to Spain and Italy is a question mark. But um, can it continue to hold that centralization? Yes, because it's prepared to use whatever violence it needs to use to do it. Um, if it falls apart, it's because the elites start to squabble who are responsible to you know, to hold the centralized control together. And that's why I think our big danger is not economic over the next two to three years. The big danger is war. Well said. 